Welcome to the Better Clinician Podcast with myself, Ben Cormack, and also Adam Meekins. The Better Clinician Project brings you high-quality education at a ridiculously low price. This podcast will bring you topics that are relevant to modern clinical practice, all done with a bit of fun and humour. Nothing in this podcast constitutes medical advice. Okay, BC peers and everybody else listening on the podcast, if you're following in this on the airways rather than watching us in glorious Technicolor, welcome to another episode of Thoughtful Thursdays on the BCP, where each month myself and my deep thinking, methodical, <laughs> philosophical colleague, Mr. Cormac, get deep and dirty into some questions that are thrown at us by our members. Uh, how are you feeling today, Ben? Very philosophical? Philosophical? Philosophical. Um, yeah, I, I think I am a bit, I, I'm this uh, rare character where I'm both deep thinking and uh, and also really, really scatty at the same time. <laughs> So yes, but I do. I, I do like this uh, perception that I give out that, uh, of, of deep thinking. I've managed to uh, to fool you with my, my deep thinking facade, haven't I? It's all it's all a sham. It's all, it's all, a, sham. all a sham. It's, uh, it's just just <laughs> for social media. It's all a sham, absolutely, isn't it all? Um, yes, no, all good, my friend. Um, kind of glad to get January out of the way, if I'm honest. January's always a very difficult month, isn't it, if we're honest? It's a bastard of a month, I think, is how I'll describe January, mate. It's uh, it's not a good one. No, Particularly when you've been in a calorie deficit as well. I know. And I, I do, you know, for, for people who, who don't know Adam quite as well as I do, Adam is a grumpy bastard the majority of the time. So That's being true. in a calorie deficit is like, it's like being grumpy on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No, it just, I mean, you're right. My grumpiness does vary in intensity uh, and it's always there, present and persistent. Yeah. I think I can class myself as a chronic grumpiness yeah. or persistent grumper. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, this month it has definitely been on the higher level of uh, intensity thanks to being hangry a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but what I do like is you definitely own it, don't you? You definitely oh, absolutely. I, I am well aware of it and uh, yeah, I do own it. And uh, sometimes, maximize it and play off it as well just to <laughs> yes. some advantage but there is nothing like being hungry to uh to, to make you irritable and grumpy is there yeah I, I say short fuses can get even shorter when you're hangry anyway let's stop talking about my hunger pains and uh let's dive on into this month's thoughtful thursday so we got a couple of cracking questions from some new bc peers which is always good rather than the yeah. usual suspects firing questions at us mm. so we're going to start off with one that is probably right up your alley mr cormack because it's talking about all things pain and neuroscience and being a pain nerd i know you like to get deep and dirty into glial cells and dorsal root ganglions and all that sort of crap and sub if you don't mention substance p substance p in this i'll be very very disappointed Anyway, so this question comes from James Holland, and he's asked us, why is referred pain painful to touch in the referred pain region distal to the site of the tissue irritation? So I think that's quite a, an interesting question. So what's your thoughts there, Mr. Benny Boo Boo, pain science neuro geek? Yeah, uh, actually, I, I have let my pain science neuro geek membership card lapse 
quite a lot over the past few years, if I'm honest. Um, I realise You are normally a card-carrying member of that society. Well, I don't, they didn't really accept me, if I'm honest, so I kind of, <laughs> I kind of gave the card back. Um, so, yes, it's, it's interesting. Um, so, look, I, I think there are a number of different things that happen when it comes to referred pain. Um, and I think probably the the most common place you get that is with things like, you know, uh, referred um, pain of the nerve root. So ridiculous pain, which which sends um, so changes sensation changes. Well, I suppose you would call that less referred, actually, wouldn't you sometimes and maybe a little bit more. Um, kind of ridiculous in some ways when it changes the sensation at a distal point. Yeah, well, I think that's a good question first, is what do we mean by yeah. referred pain? You know, what what is a definition of referred pain? And, you right. know, I suppose that a right. lot of people will say it's uh, due to different things. Uh, but really, we're talking about, as you say, pain that is felt away from the site of sensitization or irritation or structural change, I guess. So yes. if you've had an injury or you've had something, let's say, affecting a tissue, you're feeling symptoms elsewhere. Where, and as you say, that classically occurs with neuropathic type problems. So, an insult or a sensitization to a neural structure very much can cause pain to be felt pretty much anywhere along the pathway of that nerve. And, you know, if we take the classic, you know, uh, sciatica in inverted commas, which is a very loose term that we use for people that get these symptoms of pain down in their hamstrings and down into their calf and their foot due to some either, say, mechanical or chemical irritation to their nerve roots at the lumbar spine, you know, they feel pain elsewhere. But why do they have this sort of sensation of pain when you palpate that foot or when you you palpate their calf or their hamstring when they've got, as I say, a, a sensitive nerve root that's in the lumbar spine. And I think that's quite an intriguing question. And again, I think there's probably a lot of uncertainty about why that is, because pain is uncertain. Yeah. I, I, so you pointed out very nicely that idea of ridiculous referred pain. Yeah. That, that's one of the types of referred pain. And then you'd also have a more somatic referred pain, which is where you probably get that referral from a... Uh, maybe more of a somatic structure like a disc or like a, um, you know, like a uh, basic basic joint joint or something like that. A -a 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 file joint. (laughs) Yeah, a -a 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 joint. Um, And what you tend to find is those things refer more um, kind of dull, more achy, and a little bit more local to the site of the problem, whereas ridiculous referred pain is often more nervy and it goes down the dermatomal distribution and those type of things. But this is not the question that James is asking, is it? No, he's asking why do people feel the pain when you palpate the area that's away from their site of pain, uh, tissue insult or whatever. So why does somebody with sciatica have pain on palpation in their calf muscle when the actual insult is occurring to their L5 or L4 nerve root? Yeah, I can only think that there is some, because obviously, you know, that that area is innovated, that there is some kind of um, hypersensitivity that may occur in that area, change in sensation, maybe upregulation in the gain of what's happening at the nerve root, which may affect more local hyperalgesia. 
um, it could be a perceptual thing, couldn't it? Yeah. It could be yeah. that just someone feels more sensitive, so everything upregulates a little bit, and a little bit is more sensitive. If you really want me to get fancy, could it actually be that some of this stuff that happens more uh, proximally or spinally, does that also have an effect on what happens with nociceptor activity more locally? So we know that we have antidromic and orthodromic action of a nerve. So uh, orthodromic tends to be going towards, but antidromic is coming away. So if we have a radicular irritation of the dorsal root ganglion or um, what happens at the nerve root, could there also be an antidromic response, which then drives some local nociceptor activity? And I'm going to say it, that could reduce, that could create things like local expression of calcitonin gene-related peptide. It could create uh, local expression. You're going to, what am I going to say, Adam? Uh, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. Go on, go on. I'm not going to say. And these are neurogenic inflammatories, but we know that they can be activated antidromically. So actually nerve signals that are coming away from the nervous system rather than going towards um, the nervous system and that kind of ectopic discharge may end up in some antidromic activity that may create some localized expression of some of these neurogenic chemicals yeah so, no i think you say there are some definite potential physiology reasons as you've nicely explained there for yeah. why people feel increased sensitization with things like a normal palpation or touch yeah. to an area because of uh, as you say sensitized uh neural structures and physiology occurring there but the other thing you also mentioned it could just be a perception thing you know when people have pain you know in a body in a body part they just assume that when something touches it or something rubs against it because that air is painful therefore they're going to feel more pain as it gets touched so it may just you say be that sort of uh, top-down mechanisms, that anticipation, that feedback loop of expectation of it going yeah. to hurt when it touches, and therefore it does. Yeah, so you could have a really fancy one like I gave. You could have a, a simpler, not simpler per se, but more perceptual um, kind of thing. And then maybe you could also just have basic central sensitization, couldn't you? Yeah. Which means any signal coming into the spinal cord is being upregulated. Not any signal, but any kind of nociceptive signal, which you know could be anywhere Pressure, along temperature. That yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think there is a number of different mechanisms that would we could hypothesise, but I don't know if we could. They all be working together. Yeah. And yeah. So again, is it really, really messy, hard to delineate? But the explanation I think I just gave. I would suggest definitely fails what I describe as the first date test. So if you're on a first date, <laughs> it's, not, it's not something you want to be talking about. <laughs> no. And this is what I think. So, so I always think if you're sitting there with a patient, does it pass the first date test? So if I if I'm going to talk about this, would I talk about it on a first date? Or would my uh potential uh new partner with their eyes just glaze over? And I think there's always that danger when you're sitting in that first meeting with a patient, you know, do you need to give them that explanation or or, or um, is that a little bit too much for that first date? No, I like that, mate. I also use a first date analogy as well. When I teach about communication, when we're meeting people for the first time and we're, you know, getting to know them and understanding their story and trying to build a relationship, I think all the skills that you use on a first date 
Uh, that's if you've got any skills on first dates, that is, of course. <laughs> Ain't a while for me, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's if you can remember when you went on a first date, not like me, back when dinosaurs were still It was in the there. 90s, buddy, it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, different world then, man, compared to yes. dating now, that's for sure. But no, I think all the skills that you would use on a good first date, technically, they, they come into effect really well in a good clinical environment you know that you know letting people talk not showing you know too much over eagerness but being genuine you know but not being boring as well you know having appropriate you know non-verbal communication skills not all these things that much. you would try to do to get a good relationship going on a first date is all the same things you would do to try and get a good relationship on a first appointment with a patient absolutely yeah absolutely so so there you go so anytime that you bcps or anyone wider listening is this information that you're giving out? Is it passing the first date test? Yeah. Um, well, let's 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 expand James's question a little bit. How would we explain to somebody then why? Because a lot of people do want to know why might why why is this pain felt in my foot when the problem's in my back, or why am I feeling it in my little yeah. finger when it's coming from the back of my elbow? You know, how do we explain referred symptoms? What, what what's your preferred go to methods here, mate? Well, I think just that there's there's a big long nerve that connects the two sites. That, that there is a basic anatomical link. I always like to say, and I, I think I heard Jeffrey Bove use this term first. Nerves are sensitive; they're not always specific, and, and I think that explains it quite nicely for the fact that they're sensitive. You feel stuff, but where you actually feel it. And anatomically isn't always the site of the problem. And that's because it's this lovely, long, um, long structure that has lots of points where it can get irritated and tethered and annoyed. Um, and it can fire off signals electrically all over the place. So they're very sensitive, but they're not always specific in how we feel them. Nice. I like that, mate. No, that's good. And I just want to point out again, when you talk about that not very specificness of it, you mentioned about, you know, radicular pain referring in a dermatome presentation. And on general, it does have this pattern, but there is a lot of variation, you know, and a lot of people try to estimate or guess which level of the radicular issue is coming from based on the pain presentations. And there's been a couple of studies that shown that that's not a very reliable way of trying to, to uh, diagnose it or ascertain it. Yeah, well, one of the one of the things that I've heard uh, Nikolai Bogdok discuss is the fact that sometimes you can actually have this somatic referred pain and radicular pain together. So what you actually have is this one that's more probably more dermatomally accurate below the calf, etc. But at the same time, you might have a, a more somatic referral from a disc or from a zig 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 R joint or from a facet. And actually, you've got the two things going on together, which just gives you a really kind of bizarre, not anatomical location if you're just thinking of one contributor. Yeah, good point. And what a legend Nicholas Bogduk was or is. He's still with us, I think. He's retired, but I still think he's with us. I haven't heard anything that he's not. But Yeah, and, and there's just that classic paper, isn't there, that, um, that uh, I think uh, Tom Jessen pointed out recently. He's posted that up, but it's a great paper. He's done, lo he's done loads of great papers, you know, and I, I I use a couple of his papers on my courses as well. And I, and I always tell the story about how he used to love getting medical students to volunteer for his pain investigations because they were desperate for cash. And he said you could get anybody willing to do anything if you paid a medical student $50 or $100, even inflict pain on them temporarily. They wouldn't mind. 
I like a, a good bit of, uh, you know, taking advantage of students. I like that. I think yeah, that's especially good. medical students. Yes. <laughs> Going back on them before they enter into the world of, uh, let's say, hierarchical uh, nurse thinking they're the bee's knees and everything. Anyway, next question. So next what have we got one, next? Next one. And this is from someone, um, Tom Lee, L-E-A. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, and he's asked a really good question and actually why I think this is relevant, because I heard you talk about this on one of your Instagram stories um, the other day. Um, very, very similar question. Um, and it's, do you think sports therapists, rehabbers deserve more recognition within the clinical world? Now, I'm going to throw that out at you first, but because I have some quite strong opinions in this area, of course. So, you know, I'd love to hear your opinion first, and then I may be going to give an opinion about why I think some of these things happen. Yeah. No, I, I, I say talk to, like you mentioned, talked about this when I got asked this question a couple of days ago on my Instagram stories. And my my view is I think it's great that the, the NHS and other clinical environments now are opening up opportunities to other professions other than just physiotherapists for helping people with pain and musculoskeletal uh, disabilities. So I think it's great. And uh, I I I fully support it. And I think, you know, for a number of reasons, I think it's good to try and get other professions involved in musculoskeletal health rather than just having one profession owning it and basically thinking they're the bee's knees and the be all and end all with it. And that's something, again, that has annoyed me with the profession that I am in, the physiotherapy profession, is the arrogance and the ego and the hierarchicalness of this profession, placing itself above and beyond other musculoskeletal professions without much good reason, in my opinion. Um, so I've seen, you know, physios laughing and joking and looking down and being quite condescending to other musculoskeletal professions. And it, it, it still does happen and it annoys me fucking immensely. Um, and I don't think physios have got any you know, high horses to sit on with any, you know, levels of confidence or certainty based on, you know, their uh, dealings with people with musculoskeletal pain. So there's no superiority, in my opinion, of one profession over the other. Now, there's a lot of variation in the person within those professions. And that's something I always get asked a lot, you know, what's the difference between an osteopath or a physio? What's the difference between a sports therapist and a chiropractor? And I say very little, but there's a lot of variation in these professions. So, you know, it's not a question of like asking me what's the difference between the professions. It's about the difference between the professional, the person. Because yeah. I see some chiropractors, which, you know, traditionally has been seen as a bit of a quackery woo profession, who are so up-to-date, evidence-based, rational and sound, and, and they'll put some of the most so-called best physiotherapists, which has this reputation for being evidence-based and, you know, forward thinking as a profession to shame with their yeah. clinical reasoning and their skills and their, their interactions. So as I say, it's not a case of thinking one profession is better than the other. There's just lots of variations of the persons and the professionals within the profession. So I'm all for sports therapists having this chance now to, you know, go into other areas and start working with people traditionally just only seen as the remit or the uh, the the role of physiotherapists. I think it's great. And it should get physios to wake up, shake them a little up a little bit and realize they're not the be all and end all. And there are other professions out there that can do, you know, sometimes better jobs than they can for various different reasons. Yeah, uh, you know, and I, I look, I, I think one of the big things is, is, is the whole HCPC thing. 
um, isn't it? And I, I think because of that, you know, and actually, I don't know get me started on the HCPs. No, 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 I won't. Don't worry. Um, but the, the, we know that the sports therapy, uh, sports therapy society, SST, Society of Sports Therapists, sorry. We know that they did a great job of trying to get HCPC registration, which was actually accepted and then blocked, um, which I suspect came from some of those people that may have been challenged by um, that. And I think one of the problems is, is maybe there's this difference between a degree, three-year degree level sports therapy, um, which I think should be put as the same protected kind of title as physio, um, because... You know, at the end of the day, um, that's what really the HCPC remit is. And there was acceptance of that. And then, you know, why that gets blocked on a number of occasions, I don't know. And that's the same thing that's happened to the sports rehabbers. So Ollie Coburn, and I, I know what Ollie's done, which is actually he's kind of bypassed the HCPC. And he's, sought, and he's actually sought professional recognition from other um, people who offer similar services to the HCPC because it I don't understand why they won't you know recognize these things as um you, you know professions that that have their titles protected because again they're both uh they're all three-year degrees you have lots of placement hours etc etc now what happens I think is because of that lack of recognition I think what happens to the sports therapy guys is that they de-skill in certain areas that they're not seen as people that that are so diagnostic, et cetera, even though you learn those assessment skills and you're insured for those assessment skills, there's this idea that you can't provide that, even though I don't even know if that's the case, uh, if I'm being honest. But one of the problems is I think people de-skill because they're not used within the wider workforce. And I, I actually think introduction into the NHS is, is, would be is going to be brilliant because I think it will give people the opportunity to build and maintain those skills and not be sidelined into, you know, different areas. Yeah, great points, mate. As you say, it's like the old adage, if you don't use it, you lose it. And say so you yeah. do all this training in how to assess and how to diagnose, but then you can't find a job that, that gets you that ability to be able to do that. And you end up just being a gopher or, a, you know, a lackey for some other healthcare professional who's just being prescriptive with asking you what to do. That very much is saying, and it's going to be demoralising as well. So I think yeah. that's the other thing is that a lot of people, they uh, they just get into these roles where they are hoping they were going to be a bit more than they were and they're not, and it demoralises people and then I think makes them apathetic and then there's yeah. a bit of a vicious circle. I think the problem is people go into sports therapy wanting to be... Uh, involved in things like professional sport. Yeah. Now, what you find is that those roles are quite hard to come by. You find that those roles are underpaid. You find that, you know, that that, that you just, there isn't the opportunity because the sports world isn't that big. No. And, and unfortunately, once you come outside of that sports world and you maybe you didn't want to go and work in the NHS, which I think is not a strange thing for people to say, Right. I think once you come out is when, you know, that, that there isn't, there needs to be more support and more recognition of the role people can play in things like private practice and things like the NHS away from sports, especially if we are prizing rehab and those kind of things as useful tools for the population. You know, I think there's probably education that needs to happen in terms of things like comorbidity and working with some different populations, you know, maybe isn't always going to be suitable for um, inpatient stuff, et cetera. But there, I actually think as a, as a grand 
um, you know, as a grand skill set, those things aren't that difficult to learn in quite a short space of time, if I'm being honest, you know. So. No, but the, the, the only thing I think that needs to change to make it happen, as you say, is the politics and the red tape and the, well, and those the people, yeah, and those people that are in these positions of power and authority that are, are pulling the strings and have the final decisions and the say. And unfortunately, I find that a lot of those individuals are very uh biased and got vested interests and so they tend to you know until they fade away until they fossilize like i've said before you know you're going to find that these uh these changes aren't going to come about easily or quickly but we do i think you know i do have to give someone like jack chu a fairly decent mention here because i know the whole kind of msk reform thing i think that there's been i think that's been pretty reasonable he tried his best, I think, but how much of an impact it's had, I don't know. I think it's it's rattled a few cages, which is good. I think it's got a bit of uh, attention drawn to it, which again is is great. But you know, what if we actually look at what change did it actually do? I don't know. Yeah, but I suppose it shows how far you you know how deeply ingrained these things are systemically, doesn't it? That oh, yeah. you know, so, as you say, at the top, it's these quango organisations and individuals that work in them that haven't got a fucking clue. That it's you know, until, as I say, until these individuals fade away, until these associations are are replaced with young, fresh blood that thinks differently, nothing really is going to change. So, yeah. Yeah. it oh, needs a process of evolution, which takes years if not decades if not millennia yeah but you know as you can tell tom um you know uh we are both pro um integration of of we are about people not professions i think would be a great way to describe it although physio is better than sports therapy then Right, we'll get, I'll get, you'll get a good item for that at some point. Right. So, last question, and this is from Zach Spargo. Again, I hope I've pronounced that uh, correctly. Um, and he is up in Lancashire in the US, uh, in the US, in the UK. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I said US because it's a question on ultrasound. I've been thrown there, and. He asked the question of thoughts in ultrasound diagnostics in primary care as an FCP. Now, I'm not in that position or role, so I'm going to throw it over to you, Adam, to talk about ultrasound diagnostics. Yeah, diagnostic ultrasound, an interesting area of discussion. And as somebody that has been using diagnostic ultrasound for probably nearly a decade now, um, I've obviously got some biased views and vested interests here. So take my opinions with with a big pinch of salt. Um, So, you know, when I first started looking into it, I got all very excited because, again, I thought it was another tool in my toolbox that was going to help improve my ability to diagnose and therefore treat people better. And there are definitely situations and occasions when it has done that, Um, but just not as much as I thought it would, just not as uh, often as I thought it would. And it hasn't really made my treatments any easier, I think, uh, a lot of the time. Yeah. So, you know, the idea of using diagnostic ultrasound is is to confirm your diagnosis, to get that certainty. But as we all know, you know, there's there's lots of questions around just what we see on a scan. Is it the source of somebody's symptoms? And there's a lot there's a lot of uncertainty now because of numerous studies and papers in people without symptoms or disability showing things regularly seen on ultrasound scans that we see in people with pain and disability. So, you know, trying to determine, you know, what to do with this information in a clinical environment very much can be challenging and difficult. 
And a lot of the time, I think sometimes it doesn't actually aid. It can sometimes hinder and confuse things even more. Whereas if you were to stick without that imaging, you would have probably found you're going down a different route or a different pathway and probably come out the other side of it uh, successfully. And I think sometimes the imaging actually gets in a way and acts as a barrier to people. Uh, and so I think we've got to, again, just be sensible about uh, who we give access to using ultrasound and again the, the number one risk with these types of images and diagnostic ultrasound is 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 the information and how it's presented to people uh, and again i think there is a risk that if we don't train people up to use this appropriately carefully understanding the nuance and understanding the uncertainty and the shades of gray and people start giving out very firm diagnoses and sometimes you know nocebic information around what they're seeing on scans i think that's where the harms and the danger comes in so you know i'm all for people having things to aid and assist their clinical work but it just needs to be done sensibly and carefully and it's not easy to use ultrasound it's well i tell a lie it is easy to use ultrasound it's just not easy to interpret it well because it's all different shades of gray there's all various different you know (laughs) very much trying to work out you know is what i'm looking at and there's so much variation as well in anatomy and you know and I've, i've i've had discussions with radiographers and radiologists many times with what i'm seeing on a scan and they're looking at it slightly different and they're seeing something different and i'm looking at something and i'm seeing something different and it's and it's like you know three people looking at a visual illusion and seeing three different pictures in the same picture so again because of that difference of what people see the uncertainty of whether it's the cause of the symptoms they they can be as i say a lot of confusion and sometimes a, a say a, a barrier and a delay to helping people move forward so that that's some of the concerns i have with physios using it the other one i have always sorry for rabbit and on is the amount of time physios have to do and use right. ultrasound yeah. as well so if you're in an fcp role you've got 15 20 maybe 30 minutes to take the patient's history, do a physical examination, and then to also scan that person, and then to feedback the results, and then to work out a plan of action. I just think if you try to do too much all in one session, you're not going to do anything very, very well. You end up making a half-assed job of everything. Yeah. So I think sometimes if you think you need to scan somebody and you start to do that in your session, I just think it's going to make all the other stuff that you would normally do uh, worse. Whereas if you were to think, I need to refer this person for somebody else to scan who's got the 20 or 30 minutes just to scan that person, they're probably going to do the scan better. It takes the pressure off you to be able to do your history and your examination and your information and education better without thinking, I've now got to find another 10 or 15 minutes to scan them as well. So that's some of my thoughts and views on diagnostic ultrasound in physio first contact practitioner clinics. So do you, yeah, so, I mean, do you feel that there might be some uh, ultrasounders, <laughs> for want of a better terminology? Sonographers, I think, is the word yes, you're looking for. Yeah, there. Of course. Um, would, do you think that some will just potentially just, uh, you know, get use it with everybody? There is a risk of that, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, when you've got a new tool, it's very exactly. hard sometimes to uh, not feel like you need to reach for it all the time, yeah. Yeah, and I think maybe that, again, a bit like MRI, you do have to think, is it indicated for me to actually look at this? Because I think there is, all you know, always that, oh, let's just have a look. 
And actually, I think that maybe always that's uh, that's a dangerous place to start with any kind of medical imaging, isn't it? To, to not be driven by the clinical symptoms first. Yeah, and we know, again, you know, it can sometimes, like I say, it can act like a barrier and a hindrance to patients' outcomes. I'm trying to remember the name of that study that was, it was MRIs rather than ultrasounds for back pain, but showed that routine MRIs for people with back pain uh, delayed their outcomes and their prognosis and, you know, led on to unnecessary interventions a huge amount of time. Yeah. So, uh, again, I'm sure the same could potentially be happening with diagnostic ultrasound scans as well. Fair enough. Um, yeah, it might be interesting to see some research into that. Um, you know, I suppose there's not the same kind of costs and times associated with it, potentially. But at the but same, that's point, one of the benefits, but also probably one of the hindrances or concerns that ultrasound like, is very easy to get out and whip out and put on, whereas it's a lot harder to book of time in an MRI uh, machine. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the barrier, the 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 cost and time barrier may actually be a positive. Sometimes. Absolutely, you know, if you send somebody for an acute low back pain to get an MRI. You know, and the waiting list for the MRI is three months, and we know the average duration of acute back pain is around six weeks. They may think, "Fuck it, I don't need an MRI now," just because they're on the waiting list for the MRI. Unless you work in my new clinical area, like places like Mayfair and Harley Street and these type of places, you can have one in the next. <laughs> you next can have hour. one in the next hour. Yeah, as long as you can pay a grand for it, you can have you can have it when you want. It's yeah. probably quicker than getting a delivery. <laughs> 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 it probably is though. U- Uber MRIs next. Yeah, That'll be the next thing. Yeah. At least a delivery would have to fight through the traffic, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Well, look, I'm, I'm really happy with this week's, uh, this month's um, thoughtful Thursday because we've had some really great questions, really varied, and also some new people who've decided to to ask some questions as well. And again, we apologise that we haven't been had the time to answer them all uh we just picked the ones that we felt we could answer the best um, we pick the ones that we like the best that's what well, that's we, why we, cher- we, cherry, we, we go through them and cherry pick them that's what we do like <laughs> yeah, everybody yeah. oh i can answer that one although yeah. that first one that was still quite difficult i had to bullshit my way through that one so anyway what uh lovely um for uh people to kind of get involved good to see that um you know, we've got some new people asking questions and some really yeah. good questions. And hopefully we can do that again next month. Absolutely. And if you are listening to us on the podcast rather than a member of the BCP, remember, you know, if you want to get on and ask us a Thoughtful Thursday question, then all you have to do is enroll as a BCP member. And that's uh, easy with just one click of the button. And you can get a subscription for just £12 and you get access to all our back catalogue with hundreds of videos on various different topics. You know, we've covered everything from ridiculous pain, secondary hyperalgesia and referred pain. Uh, We talked about communication. We've looked at patellofemoral pain. You name it, we've looked at it and we've got much, much more lined up in the future as well so i say all just for 12 pounds no contracts no commitments and you also get the chance to uh, ask us questions on thoughtful thursdays so i don't know what you're waiting for go over to our website that's www the, no it's not the better clinic i always get that confused it's just better clinician project www.betterclinicianproject.com click on it and say one or two clicks and you are subscribed and a member of the bcp and come and join our community that is consistently growing and engaging and getting better and better week on and week out so all the best and uh we'll hopefully Thank see you, you soon. for listening to the bcp podcast 
If you would like to check out the BCP, please go to www.betterclinicianproject.com. There we have literally hundreds of videos on clinical topics, exercise examples for rehabilitation and research reviews alongside features such as Thoughtful Thursday. And please tune in again.